Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome back to Point of Origin, the podcast about the world of food from around the world. I'm your host, Stephen Satterfield. Okay, so this is a podcast, and you might not know that the voice emanating from your speakers is that of a black man. And that means many things. It has many implications, but one of the big ones that I think about a lot is the internal and external generational trauma of our relationship to land. And for a long time, when I thought about land, for me, it brought up feelings of anger and discomfort. And in some ways, that is still true, because for us so-called African-Americans, displacement and dispossession are stories that come to many of us at a young age, as told through members of our family or via lived experience. And at school, the stories of our bondage really diminish the breadth of our experience and knowledge in American agriculture. But with all things in relationship to nature, there is duality. And the older I got and began to meet other black friends from around the country, I started to adopt a new story that was just as true and just as easy to tell as the traumatic one. And that is the story of black resilience, ingenuity, environmentalism, and health. Today, we're talking to one of the sharpest minds in the U.S. on matters of food justice and sovereignty, Leah Pinneman. Leah is a farmer, author, activist. She is a co-founder and co-director at Soulfire Farm in Grafton, New York. Her book, Farming While Black, which came out in 2018, quickly became an indispensable handbook for all things land reclamation and sovereignty. It is an inspirational guide and endlessly insightful, as she is, as you will soon hear. 
But first, a man I deeply admire and am pleased to call a friend, my brother Eugene Cook, who is an urban farmer and educator of Grow Where You Are here in Atlanta, Georgia. And he is the very worthy first in-studio guest of our first season on Point of Origin. So today, Point of Origin, Farming While Black, part one of two. First up, Eugene Cook. Welcome back to Point of Origin. Today on our special episode, Farming While Black, we have one of my favorite black farmers, Eugene Cook from my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia, who is an agroecologist and also founder of Grow Where You Are. Thank you for joining us live in studio, our first ever in-studio guest for Point of Origin. Thanks for coming through. Man, so great to be here. Thank you, brother. <laughs> Definitely. So we had a the opportunity to meet last year, and I got a chance to see you in your element on the land, moving through different plants with ease, <laughs> with knowledge, with grace. Can you tell us how you began on your journey uh, as a farmer? First, I want to say the title of the show is great, Stephen, like Appreciate point it. of origin. <laughs> Yeah, you didn't mention that on the whole way up, but this is beautiful. It's poignant, too, because my um, introduction to food, really, my introduction to the understanding of where food comes from was through my parents and my maternal grandparents, my mother's parents, who are farmers in Oklahoma. We would go to that farm. I was born and raised in California, so we'd go to that farm every couple of years during the summertime, sometimes in other seasons as well, and I would see what it was like to manage large acreage of farms, which was primarily in commodity crops, mm -hmm. grains and soybeans and things. But then close to the house were all the farm animals, were all the, the home garden and the variety of the food, the freshness of the food. All of that was put into me experientially, talked about as well, but mainly experientially put into me. And I was required to keep a garden at my parents' home in California on the side of the house. Same thing, just fresh peppers, tomatoes, corn, nothing big, nothing major, but had the clear understanding that, oh, food comes from the soil. And mm -hmm. if it's going to be right outside my house, I'm obviously going to keep it as clean as possible. Mm -hmm. So that was just built into me. And then the journey into farming came much later when I was becoming a father for the first time in 1998, 99. And... Samantha and I, the mother of my oldest son, we were in a space in Pomona. We were renting a house in Pomona that had a small backyard, big enough to grow food in for a, fa a small family. And right when I knew that she was pregnant, I just went out there and started planting food. Didn't even really think about it. Mm. She and I had planted a plum tree and a uh, lemon tree prior to that. But we're in Pomona, California, and there's just food growing. And people came over for a birthing celebration, and they saw all this food. And they say, you should teach people how to grow food. I was like, I don't know how to do, I'm not in a position to teach anybody. And they said, well, you got more food than we have growing in our backyard. And that's when it really started to click to me that, yeah, we should utilize the land close to us to ensure that we can eat. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what your grandparents in Oklahoma, what their relationship to the land was? Oh, yeah. So that's my grandmother and grandfather, Patterson. For them, the land was their universe. Mm -hmm. 
because they were on 80 acres in an area that had been what they call Indian territory, right? My grandfather has really strong indigenous bloodlines here to the United States, mm -hmm. mixed with the African bloodline. And my grandmother has more of the mix of the African bloodline and the European bloodline. So for me to come through my mother and then with my father's genetics coming from Alabama with all that strong African and indigenous bloodline, the land was just, I mean, really, it was the universe that my grandfather explained to me. It was everything that he valued was outside of his house, mm -hmm. other than his family members. You know, he kept his home clean and, he, and all of that. But what he actually valued was outside of the house. Mm -hmm. It was all the experiences that happened outside. It was the sky, being able to understand what was coming and what had left by looking at the sky being able to keep track of time by seeing what was happening in the fields. They had dug a pond, a pretty large sized pond, had fish in there, there were ducks, there were chickens, there were pigs, there were, wow. you know, there was just life. It's wild. Yeah, it was just all around. So I would be coming from skateboarding in Cerritos and Compton and Lakewood in California and go on a summer vacation to my grandparents' house and just be out where I could stand in the middle of the gravel road, look one direction as far as I could see, the other direction as far as I can see. And there's nothing but the earth, mm -hmm. no traffic, no stop signs. Mm -hmm. So for them, the, the land was their universe. It was how, where they spent their time, their lifetime was spent on a piece of land. And is that land still a part of your family? It is. A, there are parts of it that are part of the family mm -hmm. still. Yeah, there's still relatives down there living on it, relatives living in the house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The fertility of it, I don't know too much about. Mm -hmm. And because it had been agribusiness farmed for years and years and years towards the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you had this epiphany, what was your firstborn's name? Kush. Kush. Yeah. So, so when Kush was born, I mean, you mentioned that was kind of an impetus for you, but did you move into farming like full on right away or was it a gradual process? It was a gradual because still we were, I was in Southern California. So it went from there to working in partnership with nonprofit organizations doing community work. Mm -hmm. And this is around 2001 at the time. And I was working with a project at the Watts Labor Community Action Coalition, the WLCAC. And we were doing a garden instruction program, but it was really based on, wrapped around poetry and art and communication. And gardening was one of the pieces that the youth had to do. So working with teenage youth, all black and brown youth, a lot of Latino um, and Latinx youth. And we were planting food in these community gardens. And then people said, they were watching what I was doing, and different residents came and said, you need to meet this brother named Adonijah. He's doing work over at Crenshaw High School. You need to meet him. You need to meet him. And I was like, okay, well, you know, how do I meet him? Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up, ended up going to Crenshaw High School, going to the back. That's all people told me. You go to the back of Crenshaw High School, and there's a big old garden. Just go back there and look for him. <laughs> I went back there. I started yelling his name. He never came out. Finally, I got a call on my phone, and it was him. And he said, people say, you're looking for me. You don't need to see me. You need to see Dana. You don't need to talk to me. You need to talk to Dana. So he said, come out to Crenshaw. You can meet Dana. And I met Sister Dana out there, and I was in a food forest. Mm -hmm. It's a three-quarter acre agricultural space at a high school in Los Angeles, California, that was designed to teach agriculture back in the 
I guess probably the early 70s, mm-hmm. and then had just gone into not being used. So in 2001, there were cherries, figs, cherimoyas, bananas, grapevines, avocados, zapotes, like stuff I had just never seen, tasted. It was primarily a subtropical fruit food forest mm-hmm. with vegetable understory, broccolis and chard and spinach. And that was when it really started. I started working with him there on almost a daily basis. The I was doing a contract work with a nonprofit that ran out. I didn't have any more money. All types of different things happened. Evictions, all types of different things happened. And I found myself living and studying with this teacher. And my world has been transformed ever since. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Well, let's... Uh Let's talk about your world today. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know we're skipping yeah, let's skip. many years, but <laughs> it's relevant because the last time we talked, you were also talking about bringing some of these skills in agriculture to high schools here in Atlanta. So is that still part of your, your work here? Absolutely. We've had the good fortune of partnering with, there's a, gen- a gentleman named Dr. Charles Moore. So he works with Emory and with Grady. He's an ear, nose, and throat specialist. And he had the experience of seeing all this this hunger and health issues throughout Atlanta and has implemented a sliding scale community clinic mm-hmm. on his own time, separate from working as a doctor. And through that, he contacted us and had us do some after-school programs, some summer camp programs with the youth. And that helped us to solidify our curriculum. So now Grow Where You Are has a curriculum for food system immersion. So it is about urban agriculture and the growing, but it's also about what happens in the restaurants. It's, a, it's about how transportation is a part of the, the food system, mm-hmm. what happens in the stores, how things are marketed. And since then, we have partnered with a musician here in Atlanta named Rory. Mm-hmm. And Rory, he has a... Um, initiative called The Woods, where mm-hmm. he's been going around the country doing performances in the woods or at, at urban farms or, or even suburban farms to bring his fan base, his music base out of the traditional music venues where there's alcohol and violence is being talked about. He said, I want people to be able to experience music in a natural setting and on a farm. And so those are the initiatives that we've been really rolling out because in the school systems, we found that they have to deal with a lot of administrative oversights and expectations that are not really as conducive to the way that we like to teach. We like to bring in chefs. We like the children to have a very self-guided experience Mm -hmm. inside of safe parameters. It's difficult to do that in the school systems right now. Yeah, and and so did Dr. Moore have some personal experience that led them to want to specifically invest in this education? Yeah, specifically what I heard was that he had been driving to work in a particular route normally and he went a different direction and found himself, you you know, you're from Atlanta, Mm -hmm. you can make a different turn and literally we're in a whole nother class of lifestyle, Mm -hmm. you know, the intense oppression that is part of our experience as African people here under a colonial tyranny 
it still looks like it looks all over the world. There are, there are aspects of this city, Atlanta, that are like third world countries um, as far as it is with their facilities and cleanliness and, and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so he started seeing some of these things and was blown away and wanted to deal with the health issues immediately because he's a doctor. Mm-hmm. And then after that, he started doing a, a program called Walk with the Doc where he would take walks on Saturday morning into some of the nature preserves and show people different plants that had healing properties. Mm -hmm. So after doing that, it kind of evolved into writing prescriptions for people that would be green beans instead of a prescription for diabetes medication. So did you fulfill those prescriptions? We did fulfill those prescriptions if people came to the farmer's market. Mm -hmm. More importantly, we were working with the children of these people who were getting these prescriptions and showing them this is how we plant this. Mm -hmm. This is where it comes from. This is how we maintain it. After we grow it, it can go a couple different directions. We can take it to this restaurant or we can take it to this store or we can take it to the farmer's market. And they experienced all of those. We took them to farmer's markets had them do a produce tour with a manager at Whole Foods and, of course, different black-owned farms in the Atlanta area. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in the curriculum that you've developed around trying to help these young people have a more comprehensive view of the food system outside of just growing food because the two are very much related but also quite different as well, right? One is just about your own personal power and agency on the land. But can you say more about that curriculum, uh, why you felt it was so important to bring in a more holistic view of the food system instead of just how to grow food? Absolutely. Our curriculum is called the New Power Generation, and we were working with young people. At that time, they were about five years old to about 13 years old. So Grow Where You Are is a collective of growers who work in the food system in different ways. So for example, Giovanna Johnson-Cook, my partner, who helped to really give birth to the organization, she started as a grower and she now is a chef. She has a food delivery business for mothers who have just given birth and the families that are in that space and time, and also for private schools here in, in Atlanta. Then there's Nicole Blue, who started as a grower and also makes medicines. And then we have people like you're familiar with Chef Maricela Vega, mm-hmm. who comes from a family of growers and then and is focused on doing her work in the restaurants. So we have all these key people and members in our collective that have these very specific perspectives and are also coming from a place of being young entrepreneurial people. Some own their own businesses. Some of them just move in a way that is is an entrepreneurial spirit, Mm -hmm. and they bring that and add that value to wherever they are, similar to the work that you do. So we wanted them to see a broad base of people working in the food system, Mm -hmm. and we wanted them to understand that the reality is for us as, as people who are creating our society that the reality is that we are going to move in multiple systems almost no matter what kind of work we're going to do. Because to have success, I mean, you may not have thought you were going to have to be a radio host. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? There might not have been anything you were thinking about. Mm -hmm. Or it maybe was something you were thinking about and you could always see. And if it was like that for you, then we want it to be like that for the youth. Mm -hmm. We want the youth to see, yeah, I may really like growing food, but I also 
may have a really good, charismatic way of teaching and passing this on. The curriculum is about showing people that from the food, everything is born. Like mm -hmm. all these other industries are born from agriculture. Mm -hmm. But if we know the growing part, most likely we can shift through a lot of the other parts. The growing really provides the deepest foundational relationship to the food. I think it's so essential to to organize the curriculum in that way as well because of the pressures that heavily subsidized agro-industrial food systems put on small farms and growers that to just say, well, if you grow your own, then because it's not really that simple, it's right? It's not that simple. If it's yeah. not simple for white, young white farmers, yeah. then we can forget it. Yeah. We have to tap into the place that we're already familiar with, which is our creativity, mm -hmm. which is our improvisation, which is our, our preference for collaboration. Mm -hmm. I mean, like jazz music was created from the idea that, yeah, man, I may be out of this world on this horn, mm -hmm. but I sound really good if I'm next to somebody who's out of this world on piano at the same time mm -hmm. you know what I mean mm -hmm. and so the collaboration and the creativity is what for food sovereignty to to be actualized in the way that we're talking about and for our communities to come into a place of healing as well as a place of abundance and safety if we don't know how to grow food then we're, we're like we're denying how this country was founded mm -hmm. and not just the black part of the country the entire country is founded on agriculture period. Mm -hmm. All the wealth that we're still pushing around is agriculturally based. So then why are farmers the lowest and the most undervalued piece of that chain? It makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Know the farming. Know it. Know it good. Know where the food comes from. And then from there, walk out into the future that you want to create. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome back to Point of Origin. So tell us how you got to Atlanta to begin with. Through my teacher, uh, Adonija from California, we were working and we had hired a man named Rashid Nuri to help do some paperwork for some projects that we were working on. And then from that point, Rashid did a short trip in Africa, in West Africa, in Ghana. And when he was in Ghana, he met three women from Atlanta, uh, Mary Casey Bay, Gene Billingsley Brown and Zena Stuckey. And they were talking about essentially the idea of creating small mini farms throughout Atlanta that would help to support a new food system because these women were very informed on the toxicities of the current food system Mm -hmm. and just the lack of access to some of the things that they wanted and and had getting them fresh. So they talked and they were willing to invest. They were willing to introduce us to their contacts. So Rashid contacted me and said, hey, if I go to Atlanta, Will you come and help me do this thing? I talked it over with my teacher, and I came in 2006 
to start truly living well. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that mm-hmm. um, because you have the right approach to growing in this modern world given the many constraints that come with land use and all the rights and bureaucracy and so on. How have you managed to grow food in an urban area with all of that, all of those restrictions? Mm. It's We're in an interesting place because Atlanta from what I've come to know from people who don't live here mm-hmm. and who are involved in urban agriculture in other cities, Atlanta is very much focused on by other cities as a somewhat of a model for urban agriculture. So there's multiple kind of models that we've had to work with, but it always comes down to land ownership. Right now, Atlanta is one of the few cities that has an urban agricultural commissioner. And the idea is to involve urban agriculture more in the planning of the city as well as, well, I shouldn't, I don't know for sure, but I know that food access was a major point for the previous mayor. His idea was, I want people to have access to fresh food in every half mile throughout the city of Atlanta. So it could be a community garden, it could be an urban food forest, it could be a farm. The difference that I'm experiencing, because Grower You Are is a uh, social enterprise. Mm -hmm. So we're a business that seeks to do plenty of social good, both ecologically and with the general public. Yet it's different than a community garden. So there's a lot of investment happening in community gardens because community gardens are spaces where the land is still owned, most of times by the city, remains in that way, and they're not businesses. Mm -hmm. No matter how much food is grown there, you're not really allowed to sell it from there and make a business off of it. So there's a lot of folks who are have other positions in the food movement who will support community gardens but no, won't necessarily support urban farms or urban farmers mm-hmm. because one is about creating this kind of public, not really consistent food supply because community gardens, when it gets too hot, people stop doing it. Mm-hmm. When it gets too cold, people stop doing it. They go away. They get plowed up every spring so they can start new, and, and it does a good thing for the feeling of the people, but it's not food security, mm-hmm. and it's definitely not food sovereignty. As urban farmers, we are more inclined to be working towards food sovereignty. And that means business models that function. If the current agribusiness food business models don't function and are not sustainable without subsidies, then when we start to develop a city, a new city that wants to incorporate urban agriculture and urban farming, then we've got to look squarely at that. Because people will come to us and say, is it a sustainable business model? And oftentimes the people who ask that are working in nonprofits. Mm. <laughs> Which is not a sustainable I'm like, <laughs> Yeah. You feel what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And they're not business people. They mm-hmm. don't have that experience as business people. And I've heard it said by a lot of different farmers and a lot of different people that farmers are some of the best business people you'll ever want to find because we're actually dealing with actual numbers. Like we're dealing with projections that are real. We're dealing with real things. It's mm-hmm. not ephemeral trading in digits you know what i mean it's mm-hmm. a different it's a different reality which makes us hard to negotiate with when people are looking to have a successful program and not necessarily a successful food system mm-hmm. you know what i mean yeah and so that's the place that's been most tricky because many times landowners that we come into contact with have the consciousness and understand how important it is to have a good food system 
and there's still layers that they have more awakening for, but they understand that our food system is fundamentally broken and that it's toxic. So the land access isn't that much of an issue. What really happens is that when people see us functioning as an enterprise, there is a lot of resistance because, you know, capitalism is almost based off the idea that artists, teachers, and farmers are going to be poor. Mm. And these are some of the most fundamental actors in the community. You know, Mm -hmm. but it's almost built on the idea that teachers, artists and farmers are going to be poor always. And with in a capitalist society, the idea of financial poverty is somehow equated to a lack of intelligence. And so when people have to engage with us directly about these real issues Mm -hmm. and we have a developed perspective and an informed perspective, oftentimes people take that personally. Mm -hmm. Wow. We're just dealing in reality. Yeah. They take it personal. That is so deep. It reminds me of um, in South Africa where there have been on and off, but now definitely on calls for reparations. And for years, one of the most prevailing things that the government and other white folks in society there would point to is that well, we can't just turn over this land because there first needs to be education and without the education. So it's actually, you know, been a very prevailing and disempowering narrative about indigenous and black and brown people's relationship to the land when we very well know that that is our ancestry, right? Yeah, and the the fact that, I mean, you speak of South Africa, and so you have probably witnessed how they respond to Julius Malema speaking. Just when he talks, Mm -hmm. when the EFF, when the economic freedom fighters talk, just to speak, there's so much contention. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, listen, we're speaking in your language already. How much more of Mm -hmm. that education do we actually need? And if we needed it, why you didn't start when you first colonized us? Mm -hmm. You could have started the education process anytime you wanted it. But now you want to start it when we are asking for the land back, when we're saying it's time for you to go. Mm-hmm. Now we're saying, well, we don't want to leave. So we're in that situation here where if we as African people here in the United States can really understand that all of these, the issues with the border, all of the issues with health care are land issues. Mm-hmm. This is about land. And if it's about land, then just a step up from the land are the people who care for that. And if we don't see the people who care for the land, we have to understand why we don't. Why are they invisible? Yep. Erasure, I believe, exactly. is the word we use for that. How do you think about your work in a longer view of time um, in terms of building legacy and assuming legacy and with your own seeds and all the many youth here in Atlanta and beyond that you're dealing with and are being inspired by your work? How do you, as a black farmer, hold that idea, that notion of of legacy in your work? One of the most important pieces of the legacy in the work is the seeds, literally. So we have a seed bank that Giovanna really keeps organized and we do a lot of collecting for. And that, that seed gets shared and it also gets stored, labeled, cataloged, and then regrown. The other thing is the skills. Because 
when I look back at the only reason I'm in a position to even be interviewed by you is not because we went to school together or our parents knew each other or we bank at the same bank, but because my grandfather, my mother, and my father passed on certain skills to me, kind of knowing intuitively that they may or may not be able to pass on the land, mm -hmm. but they can pass on these skills. So when, you, when I look at legacy, I look at it in the seeds, I look at it in the skills, and then really I focus on the creatives in society. Maricela Vega is a great example of that. Um, a brother named Lilo Jones here in Atlanta, International Lilo is another great example of that. Rory is a great example of that. My, my own son, Kush, is an example of that. And what I mean is we find the creatives that are in our communities that automatically have the attention of other people simply because of the vibration that they're on. Encourage it refine it and then show them how the food system is part of their whole their reality because sometimes they know it sometimes they don't but when they find out there's nothing as creative as nature so nature's bound to be an inspiration to the people that we look towards for inspiration mm -hmm. you feel what i mean definitely yeah so that's really where it is it's like looking at the creative people and saying you're already doing your thing to the max come out here and see what this place looks like Eugene Cook. Yeah, yeah. Grow where you are. Yeah, man. Appreciate you, brother. Yeah, Thank you so much for coming through. Steven, a, a pleasure and mutual respect. Thanks, bro. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com, that's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Good morning. This is Leah. Good morning, Leah. This is Steven Satterfield calling from Whetstone. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. Can't yeah. complain. The garlic harvest is good. The peach harvest is good. All right. So. Garlic and peaches. <laughs> Love them both, but not usually together. Not together, no. <laughs> exactly. But in the, harvesting them in the same day is pleasurable. Definitely. Eating them in the same bites is not pleasurable. Truly. Um Welcome back to Point of Origin today, Leah Penniman, the co-founder and co-director of Soulfire Farm, which is in Grafton, New York, is our guest. Leah is also the author of Farming While Black, which has quickly become an indispensable handbook for all things land reclamation, sovereignty. It is a, a handbook, an inspirational guide, a historical artifact and uh, we are so glad to have you join us today on point of origin thank you so much it's my honor and pleasure so leah you have a long history in farming not only in the u.s but all over the world and as someone who is familiar with your work i know that it's really important for you to ground many of your conversations in a spirit of ancestral acknowledgement so i will honor that by giving you the opportunity to discuss what it is that brought you to this work. Thank you. I so appreciate that. Yeah, there's a story that I tell myself every day and tell anyone who will listen, uh, which is about my grandma's grandma's grandma and the other elders in Dahomey region, West Africa in the 17 and 1800s who were watching their family members get snatched up and, and be forced to board transatlantic slave ships. And in the face of that terror that they would be next, they gathered up their seed, you know, their okra, cowpea, millet, black rice, agusi melon, molokia, and they braided it in their hair and in the hair of their children so that they would have the seed wherever they were going. They really believed against odds and in a future on the lands and that their descendants would need to inherit the legacy of these precious seeds. So that is the story that keeps me going because you know, we're up against a lot of forces that are not life affirming, you know, capitalism, racism, and patriarchy, and the current administration, all the things. And so yeah. I always have to think, you know, if my ancestors didn't give up on me, then who am I then to give up on my descendants? And really being a carrier of that seed is ultimately what inspires me to get up in the morning and, and keep going. Absolutely. And let's just go ahead and name it, right? We are talking about a circumstance in which Black folks who are living in this country, who have worked the land and built this country, have been dispossessed from the land and now own virtually none of it. What is the message that you bring forth in your work 
that helps Black folks recalibrate our imagination in relationship to the land. I mean, you put that so well. I mean, I really, I think there's this myth that, um, well, I know there's a myth that Black folks were rounded up and kidnapped for strong biceps and so-called endurance and such, when in fact, it was expert agriculturalists who were taken. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the climate in Northern Europe is cold. It's conducive to potatoes and wheat and cabbage. You know, the climate in Georgia and Florida and Cuba and Brazil is tropical, and it is conducive to rice and cattle herding and cotton, you know, and that those weren't agricultural skills that Europeans had. So the slavers went and got folks who knew how to do it and built that $10 trillion agricultural industry on the backs of unwilling people. So we, we've never recovered from the legacy of that. You know, farm labor has always been exploited in this country, even after the end of slavery, morphed into sharecropping and convict leasing, which in a twist of Brutal irony is on the rise again uh, because of the immigration crackdown. You know, it morphed into the guest worker programs. And, and, and now we have 85% of the labor that's being done on farms being done by people of color. Yet, as you mentioned, between 1% and 2% of all the farms in the country being owned and managed by people of color. Of any Which is a really, a really gross disparity. And, it, you know, as Malcolm X said, you know, land is the basis of revolution, of, of freedom and equality and dignity. And so ultimately, if we don't have some kind of control over the land, we don't have this necessary foundation for our dignity as a people. And so you have given us a lot of historical context and grounding context, but what are some of your methodologies for ways that Black people and other marginalized groups can be a part of this reclamation. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we certainly don't pretend to have the answer because, mm -hmm. as my daughter Nishima says, the food system is everything it takes to get sunshine onto your plate. Mm. And that's a lot of complexity in there, you know. But at Soul Fire, we focus on three main things. One is growing food using Afro Indigenous methods and getting that food to our people, right? And so we are blessed to be able to steward 80 acres of Stockbridge Muncie Mohican territory up in these mountains, cold mountains. And then we cultivate that in you know, vegetables, fruits, eggs, meat, herbs, you know, and, and box that up and bring that to folks in the community at affordable prices, down to free, right? So that's, mm -hmm. that's one thing is really survival program, like walking the walk, doing the do every day out there in the mud pulling garlic and whatever needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And then the second major thing we're trying to do is to educate, inspire, and support that returning generation of black and brown farmers. You know, the folks whose grandparents fled the red clays of Georgia and the great migration and now are saying, we left something behind, you know, a piece of our culture and our autonomy and we want it back. So we have people coming through uh, for training programs and in the wintertime we go travel and offer trainings and then you know, once folks graduate, we, we try to hook people up with land and jobs and the things they need. And then the final, the third and final kind of area we work on is around reparations. And reparations is repair. You know, reparations is to look at what's been taken, the stolen labor, the stolen land, and to figure out ways to give back what was lost because history is alive today. You know, the fact that 98% of the rural land is owned by white people is because the land is 
passed down and it was taken originally. So there has to be some redistribution and we work on that on the policy level as well as a people to people level on a regional scale. In terms of like the three points uh, that you all are focusing on at Soulfire, the R word reparations may be challenging for some listeners who feel they were not complicit in the stolen land. They themselves weren't there. Maybe they feel they haven't directly benefited from that. Can you say what it is in the reparations framework that makes that work so essential that might not be so readily available for everyone? Sure. I mean, and the amazing thing is right now, contrary to all my expectations, this is part of a national conversation. So there's a lot out there that folks can read, which is good. (laughs) Truly. Uh, But I'll I'll share a quick story. So this is a story that one of my mentors, Ed Whitfield, likes to tell. He said, so imagine that your neighbor came over and stole your cow and everybody saw them do it. And then after a couple of weeks, the neighbor comes over with tears in their eyes, just uh, remorse on their lips, saying, I'm so sorry, I took your cow, that wasn't right, I I sort of see the light, Uh, but don't worry, I'm going to make it up to you. You Every single week for the rest of this cow's life, I will bring you half a pound of butter. And of course, you'd be like, I would like my cow back. (laughs) But like, unfortunately, a lot of the policies that we have right now in the United States to deal with this long legacy of attempted genocide against indigenous people, the enslavement of the population, of you know, redlining and other types of white affirmative action, is to just say, oh, well, we'll throw a couple like token scholarships or after-school programs here and there, which is like the butter, you know, when fundamentally you can't run your farm if you don't have your cow. And so it's not that we need to figure out who's to blame and whatnot. This is, this is an all of us issue. Like, how do we take the collective wealth of this nation, which we know was built on the backs of stolen land and stolen labor, and work together to redistribute it? Um, and I think if folks can, you know, step outside of the shame and blame and ego and finger pointing and just say, you know, whether I directly did it or not, you know, for example, I am a Taino and black woman and I live on Stockbridge Bunsey Mohican land. I didn't personally kick the Mohican people off their land. Am I still obligated to be in solidarity with them and to make sure they have access to this land that I benefit from as a settler? Of course, right? And so there's ways that we benefit from this wealth that's been created at the expense of others and that that makes it part of our obligation to, to be a solutionary. Does it complicate the work at all for you given the fact that the whole premise of land in this country is so arbitrary and yet it is so fundamental to our own sovereignty? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly complicated because since the 1400s, when Europeans introduced the idea of enclosure, the idea of private property and the erasure of the commons, we've just had a real struggle to be able to decolonize and re-indigenize our relationship to land. So, you know, even here at Soulfire, we're trying, you know, we created this co-op and nonprofit structure and all of these legal structures to try to fit the square peg of white man's law into, you know, the round expanse mm-hmm. of the way that indigenous folks understand shared land. You know, mm-hmm. when Northeast indigenous communities were so-called selling their land to European settlers, their idea wasn't, oh, you fence it and you're excluded. It's a use right. The land can't be owned. The land is stewarded by 
us on behalf of generations to come. And, and so there's a fundamental mismatch between the commons that I aspire to and some of the legal tools that we have to use to to get there. What has the response been as you all have deepened your relationship to the indigenous communities in your area? Yeah, I mean, it's been a big lesson for me in, in humility, because I think as a person of color, as a non-binary person, there's ways that I'm more accustomed to helping folks with privilege understand the ways they can be in solidarity and be good allies or accomplices. And so it's really important to be in a space where I've got to do the listening and, and practice what mm-hmm. I preach. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's so much generations of hurt and mistrust. The, the divide and conquer strategies of the colonizers have been quite effective in dividing black communities from indigenous communities, from Latinx communities and so forth. So all that to say, I feel really, really honored that anybody, any of the original people here would take the time to build a relationship with us and really want to thank Warren and Molly and Bonnie of the Mohican community for building a friendship. We do some seed exchange. We um, work on some campaigns and trying to draft a cultural respect easement, which would guarantee Mohican folks for generations to come the ability to, to gather medicines here on the land. And I'm just grateful that, you know, I was welcomed out to the reservation to, to visit with people and to learn about the history. And we, we keep part of our farm as a Mohican style three sisters garden and incorporate a lot of the traditional varieties in an attempt to to make sure this land is continually used in the way that it was intended. And collective farming is actually very much a part of the Black tradition. Absolutely. Yeah, can you you talk about the relationship between our African-American ancestry and cooperative farming? Sure. I mean, there's so many different kinds of co-ops and beautiful, non-exploitative economic relationships that have come out of the Black community. Like the CSA in particular was the idea of Booker T. Watley, a professor at Tuskegee University in the mid-1900s, who noticed that wholesale just was not making ends meet for Black farmers. They were excluded from the best markets and so forth. So he said, you know, forget all that. We're going to do direct consumer marketing. People will be members of your farm switch to diversified horticulture, add a pick your own operation and create newsletters and other things to make people feel connected to the farm, right? So that all sounds really familiar to us. Mm -hmm. So the CSA, pick your own farm to table, know your farmer, all that stuff really came out of the innovation of uh, black farmers in Alabama. And, you know, of course, that's just one kind of co-op, you know, food hubs, which are started out as church sheds in the black community back in the early 1900s were places where farmers would aggregate their produce, put it in a truck and bring it up to Chicago, you know, co-ops themselves where where farmers share tools and resources. There's a whole federation of Southern cooperatives that has hundreds of black-led co-ops. So we've kind of figured out the working together thing in our community for a long time. And it's good that society is just starting to catch on. Definitely. And you all have, I mean, are hugely impactful in your local community. And one of the great things about your your text, for instance, I was just in Amsterdam last month and met a sister there who was checking out our magazine. And she was like, oh my God, Soul Fire Farm. Ah, they're so amazing. I'm obsessed with everything they're doing. She had your book too. So it's really cool that in your text, your ideas have spread, not just in the country, but are spreading all over the world. In practice, how are you all thinking about transferable elements to 
underserved communities, especially in these food apartheid areas that you might not be able to directly reach or impact through something like a, a CSA? That is such a good question. We've been thinking hard about that because what capitalism would say is, you know, grow bigger, franchise, have a national office, you know, all of this. And it isn't right. That's not the right model for us. I think one of the beauties of Soulfire is that it is such an intimate family-sized organization. So we get to be humans together mm-hmm. and we all have a relationship with this land in a tangible, non-theoretical way. So we look to the forest, we look to nature anytime we don't know what to do. And and so what does nature do? If one tree has a whole bunch of sugars that it's making because it's got extra sun, extra strength, right? It doesn't just grow three times as tall as the other trees. It actually puts those sugars and minerals into a network of fungi in the forest floor to distribute to the other trees so that they can grow big together. And in a similar way, we have a train the trainer program for folks who want to start similar educational models to Soulfire. Uh, we created a manual for farmers about how to do a low income CSA like ours and we go around and do workshops. And so the idea is not that like everyone does the same thing as Soulfire, right? But that we share all the tools as best we can. I mean, that's what the book is about, right? Like just share whatever we figured out and then people adapt that to the needs of their local community. Have you had a chance to connect with people who have not maybe formally been a part of your programs and and hear like I did um, from a stranger about how your work has rippled out? It's been really powerful and surprising because I tell you, when I started farming in the 90s, there was nothing cool about it. And nobody in Amsterdam would be telling you how (laughs) inspired they were about your farm. You know, so it's just I just laugh to myself every day. But I'm probably the most exciting surprise feedback that I got was when Taj Mahal, the, you know, world famous blues musician, Mm -hmm. sent me a little video of him holding up the book wow. and saying what a treasure it was. And I hadn't known that he was a farmer before he's, he was a musician. And so he was saying how important it was, like food and music are the things that are gonna save our world. And so I got to spend some time with him when I was out in California and visit him. And, and that was Very just super cool. affirming to have this elder say that it meant something. I, that's one of the things that I think about so often is in this dispossession, you know, these, even though the story began for us hundreds of years ago, like, and it's not even just in the the redlining or in urban areas, which I feel like we know a little bit more about, but black farmers in rural areas, you know, who are our grandparents, who themselves fought so hard to sustain not only their families, but the generations of their families who never got to benefit from the land. Can you talk about the legacy, specifically the Pickford versus Glickman versus the USDA and the aging legacy of of Black farmers here in the U.S. that maybe didn't have an opportunity to see the interest that you are now getting to experience with your book, for instance? That's so real. I mean, at the peak of Black farmland ownership, our folks had acquired, accumulated um, approximately 16 million acres of land, and almost all of that is gone. Not because Black folks don't want to farm anymore, but really because of the government discrimination, as you mentioned, in terms of access to loans and insurance and crop allotments. And this was exacerbated during the Civil Rights Movement when, you know, these USDA programs were really sharpened into a weapon to punish any type of voter rights activity. As a farmer, you'd just be denied if you were an NAACP member or whatnot. Mm -hmm. 
so we had that as well as as outright racist violence. You know, the Ku Klux Klan would burn people's houses and, and lynch them for being too uppity, you know, trying to stop the sharecropper life and having their own farm. There's 4,000 people who fell victim to that. So that great migration to the North was really a refugee crisis, not a search for opportunity as it's often portrayed. And and now black farmers are dealing with another big challenge. Mama Savvy Horn explained to me so well, she said that when a, a black elder doesn't leave a will, in many ways what they're doing is thinking about their land as a family commons, which is how it's always been ancestrally. It's not about choosing a certain heir or trying to mess with any legal paperwork. You're, you, the land just stays in the family. But that doesn't match with white man's law in most states because what happens is that one heir, even if there's a hundred heirs, one heir can essentially force a partition sale of the entire land and the land can be lost. And that's the number one driver of black land loss right now. And, and people know how to take advantage of that, the developers and so forth. You know, so there's a lot, there's a lot. And I'm so proud of the folks who beat the government in the Pigford case and won the largest civil rights settlement in the history of the U.S. I know it was too little too late. I know it was mostly a symbolic victory, but they really gave our generation the inspiration to say they were holding on to that agrarian tradition just long enough for us to see their example and to pick up the mantle. So we have, we're deeply indebted to them. Okay, well, I will let you get back to the business of farming and liberation on the land. It was really such a pleasure to talk to you. And the next time I'm in New York, I'm going to hit you up. I We got to break bread so we can go all the way in. I would love to have you on the land and share some of this bounty with you. Um, and if any listeners want to get involved with Soulfire, contribute to the reparations map or rock with us in any way our website is super dense with all the info it's soulfirefarm.org soulfirefarm.org and also on the gram too right yes we're on the gram soulfirefarm all one word all one word all right that was leah pinneman of soulfire farm thank you so much for joining us on point of origin thank you take care all right you too That's it for this episode. Point of Origin is a podcast from iHeartMedia and Whetstone Magazine, executive produced by Christopher Hasiotis and hosted by me, Stephen Satterfield. Special thanks to Kat Hong for editing, supervising producer Gabrielle Collins, and a very special thanks to my business partner, Whetstone co-founder Melissa Shi, who helped produce this podcast. Thanks, Mel. And thanks to all of you for supporting Whetstone and listening to the Point of Origin podcast. For all of the latest on all things Point of Origin, you can follow us on Instagram at Whetstone Magazine or online at whetstonemagazine.com. We'll see you next week at the Point of Origin.
right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.